You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So every year, the, the federal government recognizes a, a number in the U.S., recognizes a number of national holidays, right? So in case you didn't know what those are, I'm about to tell you. The first one is obvious, is New, Year, New Year's Day, right? January 1st. Celebrate the new year, look back on the year before. Then there is Martin Luther King Jr. Day on the third Monday in January. It's a, it's a day to remember the greatest civil rights leader our nation has known. And as we move on, we get to George Washington's birthday, third Monday in February, remembering our first president as a nation. A Memorial Day, which we just celebrated in May, it's a, a solemn day to, to honor those who have given the ultimate sacrifice, have fallen in battle for the freedom of our nation. Uh, a new one, but very important, that we'll celebrate soon, Juneteenth. On June 19th, it's new as a federal holiday, but it's a day we remember as Americans the, the dark history of slavery in our nation, and we celebrate the end of that wicked institution. Fourth of July, Independence Day, and then as we move on in the fall, we have Labor Day in September, Veterans Day, and Thanksgiving, uh, and then Christmas. Like A lot of holidays, right? Then you can sort of add to this all of the random holidays that people just make up. I got an email yesterday from Dunkin' Donuts telling me it was National Iced Tea Day, right? Maybe it was international, I don't remember. They gave me a coupon. Or um, National Taco Day is one of my favorites. Or uh, another one that I really like, National Pencil Day, for those who, who really love using pencils as a writing utensil. I am not making this up, right? And here, here's the reality. We're, we're a people who just love to commemorate things that are valuable to us, Right? We just do that habitually. Whatever we consider significant in our lives, we want to find a way to commemorate it. And, th- and we see this theme not only just in our world around us and in our own lives. We-, we see this when we come to the Bible and we see this in the Old Testament. Randy Alcorn writes this. He, he writes this in a-, in a book called Happiness. He says, God built into Israel's calendar seven holidays, accounting to about 30 days of feasts per year. Add the weekly Sabbaths, and the total comes to around 80 days of feasting and rest annually. Add the the later feasts of Purim, to look at today, and Hanukkah, plus weddings and birth celebrations, and the amount of time off for celebration and worship in Israel exceeded three months annually. Some of you hear that and you're like, I need to talk to my boss tomorrow, right? (laughs) Don't ask for that. It's not going to happen, probably, right? But we, we love to celebrate... Because God has wired us to joyfully commemorate what he has done for his people. That's that's why we see that all throughout the Old Testament. And we as as those who are made in the image of God, that's why we commemorate things, right? And that's what a holiday is, right? Think about it. It is simply a fixed day on which the ordinary schedule of our lives is suspended so that we can commemorate someone or something. That's what a holiday is. As we come to the end of the book of Esther today, we're going to examine more closely such a holiday, the holiday of Purim. 
Now, if you remember last week, as we were uh, in, in chapter 8 and beginning in chapter 9, we, we ended by that final point was a joyous celebration. We started looking at this holiday. God's people, the Jewish people, they're delivered from their enemies, Haman and his Agagite followers who are trying to destroy them. And so today we're, we're continuing that theme. It's sort of part two of last week. And we're, uh, if you will, we're sort of double clicking on that joyous celebration. And we're looking more closely at it in order to, the reason we're doing that is not only because it's in the text, but to stir our hearts as Christians to regularly celebrate our own deliverance, right? And, and just, just so you know, um, this, is where, this is sort of a whole sermon in itself, but one of the questions you may have as we're talking about Purim is what, how, we don't celebrate this as followers of Jesus, so should we, what, what do we celebrate? And so just so you know, as Christians... What God has given us, and we see this in the New Testament, there's really two ways, two formal ways to commemorate our deliverance. And all of these feasts, including Purim, point to Christ. We have to remember that. And so when we come to the New Testament and we see Christ crucified, buried, risen, and ascended, what is the church doing to to commemorate their deliverance? The church is really doing two things. They are gathering weekly to celebrate the risen Christ, the crucified and risen Christ, and they're observing the sacraments. So I'm, I'm just going ahead and telling you, that's the argument I'm making. I, I'm saying that all of the feasts of the Old Testament, whether it's Pasto, Passover, Feast of Booths, Day of Atonement, all of these things find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. And there are millions of ways for us to cultivate remembrance in our own lives. But as Christians, the New Testament church, the church today, There's all sorts of things we can do to remember, whether it's the church calendar or taking advantage of holidays like Purim to help us think about the gospel. The way we formally commemorate our deliverance in Christ is what we're doing right now, what we'll do later when we partake of Lord's Supper, and when we see new Christians come to life and we baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, there, there are two ways to celebrate a holiday, and I think you can all relate to this. One way is you take the day off from work, you go, thank you, I have a day off, I'm going to eat some good food, I'm going to hang out with my friends, and then I'm going to ask, what are we celebrating again today? I forgot, right? You've been there. Some of you, that happened a few weeks ago. You're like, what holiday is this? I got a Monday off? Then the other way, and we, we would say this is what we're aiming for, right? The other way is to to reflect, to pause and think deeply. All of those holidays we just mentioned have opportunities for us to to do this. Think deeply on what's being remembered. What has happened? What what does that have to do with me? How does that transform the way I think, the way I live? How am I going to continue on remembering this so it's not just a one day a year or a one time a week thing when we gather? We want the latter in our lives as we're considering this feast today and considering our own deliverance. So as we consider Purim, we can really sum up the the message God has for us in this passage in a sentence, and it's this. Remember the providential deliverance of God in a way that produces a generous life, imparting the message of salvation to others. That is Purim in a nutshell. Okay, I'm going to read it again because that's a long sentence. This passage in, in a sentence. Remember the providential deliverance of God in a way that produces a generous life, imparting the message of salvation to others. Okay, so, so as we double-click on the, the Feast of Purim 
and we see the drop-down menu, right? There's, there's three things, if you will, okay? It's a day of remembrance, it's a day of generosity, and it's a day of impartation. Remembrance, generosity, impartation. That's where we're headed this morning. So number one, Purim is a day of remembrance. Look at verse 20 through 21. We see this day is established. Verse 20 says, And Mordecai recorded these things, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year. Okay, so as we saw last week, the people of God in Persia, they're, they're in exile, they, uh, they're celebrating with joy and gladness their deliverance from their enemies. They didn't need to be told to do that. Their lives were, were, were saved and they overcame their enemies and, and no one needed to say, hey guys, we need to celebrate what happened here. They just started celebrating. That was sort of the natural result of victory. Let's celebrate this. But what Mordecai does, and he's being a good leader here, he sees an opportunity to then take this celebration and codify it and make it a formal annual holiday for the people. So he writes an account of what happened and he calls all of the people, all of the Jewish people throughout the nation to formally recognize this day for years to come. Why is he doing that? Well, the concept is simple. You and I understand it. If you, if you don't put something in your calendar, you're going to forget it right? You've, you guys have seen me do this, right? Uh, you, you've, we've talked before or after the service, and I've said, yes, I'll call you this week, right? Or let me send you that. Or, hey, can we get together? Okay, yeah, absolutely. If I'm just telling you, if I don't take out my phone and say, hey, Siri, remind me to email Eric, it will not happen. In fact, I was looking at this on Friday, and I thought, I was supposed to email Lydia something like two weeks ago, and I stopped and wrote her the email. She's nodding her head right now, right? <laughs> because if, if, if I don't put this in, I'm just going to, to forget it. Well, that's the same concept here, but it's obviously bigger. It's for an entire group of people. And so Mordecai is sort of putting it in the Google calendar, if you will, for God's people, so they won't forget what happened. Every year, on the 14th and 15th of Adar... Now, uh, as an aside, today Purim is celebrated just on 14th Adar, which this, past, this year in 2023 was sundown of March 6th to, sun, uh, to sundown on March 7th. But that is the day that was established to remember this. So he establishes it formally. He takes the natural celebration and saying, we need to do this constantly so that we can remember, so that we won't forget. Now, what are they remembering? Well, we've talked about this often. We talked about it last week, and he mentions it again here. They're remembering God's deliverance. Look at chapter 22, the verse, the first half of the verse. It's a long verse. It says, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. God saved them from a wicked plan to annihilate the entire group of people. Haman's plan. And, and notice two aspects of the deliverance. There's relief and there's joy. 
relief from our enemies, and he gave us joy. And I just think of this, and I think, what, what a beautiful verse. Friends, the, 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 sometimes when you're looking at the scripture, like, how does this connect to the gospel? I have to sort of think about that for a minute. Not here. It is so clear, the gospel connection here. This is what God does for us in salvation. He, he does what we could never do by bringing relief from our enemies of Satan's sin and death. And in doing so, He gives you a joy and a gladness to replace the sorrow. He doesn't just take something away. He gives you something better. He turns your mourning into a holiday. I think of King David's words in Psalm 30. He says, you've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've you've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise. So you hear, here's what you did for me, Lord, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to celebrate that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. We think of the words of Jesus Christ to his disciples as he's ready to go to the cross and they're confused and they're going to they're gonna be heartbroken when he, he dies and he says this to them in John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So I'll ask you, are there ways in which you're sorrowful right now? Maybe you're you're mourning, you're discouraged, you feel helpless maybe against you know, battling that sin struggle that just seems like there's no victory, or maybe you've been hurt by somebody, or just the constant barrage of, of suffering has, has brought you down low. Esther 9.22 is a great verse to meditate on if that's you. Because, friend, if, if you're a Christian, let me remind you of the most important thing about you. You have been delivered from the enemy. You've been rescued from Satan's sin and death. And you are, you've been given something. You are, right now, a beloved child of God. You're a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And that reality should stir our sorrowful hearts to joy and gladness. So I wonder, what, what, what if in the midst of those difficulties... And discouragement, you reminded yourself of that truth. Just as the Jews needed to constantly be reminded of what God did in Persia, so we need to constantly be reminded of how Christ has turned our sorrow into gladness and our mourning into holiday. Here's what's beautiful about it. The way Christ did it is not from a distance in a snap of the fingers. He entered into your sorrow. So not only does he take your sorrow and give you joy, he understands your sorrow because he too has experienced it. What an incredible gospel verse in the middle of this book that doesn't even mention the name of God. What about those of you who, maybe you hear me and you say, okay, but I'm not sure I believe the gospel yet. Well, friend, know this, you cannot save yourself. Only Christ can do what that verse says. Only Christ can take your sorrow and, and turn it to joy. Only Christ can give you salvation. So, so this holiday, Purim, was remembering deliverance. But second, they were also remembering God's providence. You can put those two together. It wasn't just a deliverance. It was a providential deliverance. 
right? Look at verse 24. This is where we see the name of the feast. It says, For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. There's that deliverance. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them. So we're we're getting the origin of the name here. The name's very important. This word Purim is derived from the word Pur, which was not a Hebrew word. This was a Persian word that was borrowed by the Jewish people at the time. And the word means lot or, or die, like singular for dice. So Haman, if you remember, chapter 3, he's trying to find a day to execute his wicked plan. So he's casting pur. He's casting lots as he's looking at the calendar. And this is an act of pagan divination. It's like he's going to the fortune teller to see what day this should be. And that's how he determines the day. Now, the Hebrew word for, uh, for lot is also given in verse Verse 24, if you look at your Bibles in that, uh, that parentheses there, that word lot is the Hebrew word, and that's the word goral. Now, why does that matter? You're like, listen, we, don't, we know you've been to seminary. We don't care, right? Here's why. Here's why this, this matters. We don't see the word per anywhere else in the Bible because it's not a Hebrew word. But the equivalent, the word goral, we see it in many places. Most significantly is the one that the Jews in Esther, Mordecai, the narrator of this story had in mind, and that is Proverbs 16.33, which says this, the lot, that's goral, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That's what they named this holiday. So this gives us a little bit, this is like a theology of dice rolling, right? You don't see that in the systematic theology. You got like divinity of Christ, Trinity, dice rolling, right? But that's what, what Proverbs 16.33 is giving us. When you cast a lot, when you roll a, a die, when you roll a pair of dice, you can hope for the outcome, but you can't plan it. Right? It is random according to us, but it is not random according to God. The Lord determines how every single lot will land. It's every decision is from him. And that is not some poetic hyperbole. That is doctrinal reality. So the, the doctrine here is, we've talked about it before throughout the series, it is the providence of God, his purposeful sovereignty. So in the, in the mystery of God's providence, he worked out Haman's casting of lots to land on a certain day, a day in which Haman thought he would have his evil way and destroy God's people, but God, who works all things together for the good of his people and for his glory, set that same day, not as a day of death, but as a day of deliverance. Why? Because God is the one who determines the decision of every lot that is cast. This holiday could easily have been called uh, the day of Mordecai, right? Or the feast of Esther, But that is not what they called it. Why not? Because it was God who providentially worked to save his people. 
not Mordecai, not Esther, not Ahasuerus. It was God. So this is, I think, intentional in a book that does not mention the name of God explicitly. The naming of this feast is another hint at the handiwork of the sovereign God who is in charge here. The name's very significant. This wasn't just a random deliverance at the hands of man. This was a providential deliverance at the hands of a sovereign God. The destiny of God's people will, and this is true of us as well, the destiny of God's people will not be determined by Haman's lot casting. Only Yahweh through his meticulous providence. And that's what that is, right? A rolling of the dice. Meticulous providence. Only he determines the roll of the dice. Only he determines, ultimately, the destiny of his people. It doesn't mean we're robots. That doesn't mean we don't make decisions. There's absolutely mystery there. But the final say, the sovereign God in his providential plan is always what prevails. That's why they named the Feast Purim. The very, the very name is meant to help God's people remember God's providence. It's, a, it's sort of a doctrinal flag for them and for us. It helps us prevent, last week we talked about gospel amnesia. It helps prevent providential amnesia. So we forget that even the most challenging situations, we can't see how, but God is working. The Heidelberg Catechism gives a, a very helpful summary of this doctrine he says, it says this, we've read this before, but it's worth revisiting. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, you could add the roll of the dice, indeed, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So if, if we're to say, what, if we're to select one primary doctrine of this book that it emphasizes, it would be the providence of God, his purposeful sovereignty. And that leads us to ask, do you believe in this doctrine? Do you believe that even the most difficult things God is not distant, but he is actively working his providential plan. And friend, do you see the comfort that this brings? The truth of God's providence in the midst of all those sorrows and anxieties you were thinking about before. The Heidelberg Catechism goes on to describe some of the practical implications of this. It says, because of God's providential care, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. God's holding you, Christian. So, what is this day remembering? Purim is, is remembering God's providential deliverance. Now, number two. It's also a day of generosity. Number one, a day of remembrance. Number two, a day of generosity. Now look at verse 22 again. It's a long verse. Look at the second half. It says that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So this is, this is a brief description of what's actually hap what actually happens on Purim. 
the, the way the holiday is celebrated over the years has, has changed in, in many ways, and there's even some different ways. I was, I was studying this week. There's all sorts of different ways um, it's celebrated, but there seems to be even today a few primary observances. First, the scroll of Esther is read aloud, and this sounds really fun, by the way. Um, when Mordecai's name is uttered, the congregation would whisper something like, the memory of the righteous is a blessing. And whenever Haman's name is uttered, they whisper, the name of the wicked shall rot, right? <laughs> or they'll boo and hiss and cheer. Sounds like a great time, right? You're also supposed to perform an act of, of charity to those in need. You're to, to share the gift of food with at least one friend. You partake in a, a festival and there can be costume wearing and car, uh, carnivals and things like that. And there's these delicious pastries that you can find in the back room, thanks to Tom, uh, 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 called... Uh, I can't even say the word, but Haman's ear, right? So you eat pastries, right? Good, sounds, sounds fun, right? One of the most interesting references I found this week, I had to share this with you, was a fourth century rabbi. Here was his recommendation uh, for celebrating Purim. He recommended that each person drink until he knows not the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. Um, I don't advise that, but I just thought you'd, you'd, you'd find that interesting. All sorts of different nuances to the way it's celebrating depending on where you are. And, but notice the simplicity of the original holiday. You see that? More specifically, the aspect of generosity. They're, they're feasting and giving. That's really it. Now, as I read this this week, I thought, if that part wasn't in there, the giving part, I wouldn't think anything of it. If the holiday just consisted of, you know, we're going to remember what God did, we're going to read the scroll of Esther, or what, we're just going to remember this deliverance and feast, that would make sense. But it's, it's marked by a giving spirit. Well, why is that? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, God's gracious deliverance always leads to generosity. It's a concept we see all throughout the Bible. And the, the, the Jews in Persia and Mordecai was not lost on this. That's why giving is a part of Purim. You, you've received something unimaginable. You've been delivered from death. What better way to celebrate than to be giving to others, to, to pass on such generosity? Maybe have you, Raise your hand if you've ever experienced the pay it forward phenomenon. You guys know, or at least if you know what I'm talking about. Right, so you're in the line at Starbucks, and you get up to, to you know, the drive through and you... You go to pay for your coffee, and then the, the barista is like, hey, the, the person in front of you paid, paid for yours. And you're like, sweet, free coffee. And then they're like, do you want to pay it forward to the next person, right? And you're like, not really, but I guess I feel like I should. So it's a, it's a little more obligatory, but that sort of gets at the concept, right? I've been, someone's been generous to me, so I should, I should be generous to others. I should sort of pay it forward. As we think about that, it makes, it makes total sense. It's at the heart of the gospel message. It's at the heart of the Christian faith. It's at the center of the scriptures. John 3.16, probably the most famous gospel verse in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In Christ, you have been given more than you can imagine. God is a generous God. He's given eternal life to his people. That's worth any, more, far more than any amount of money you can imagine. And so therefore, it makes sense that we who have received from a generous God should be generous to others. We see this in the Apostle Paul's life. We see this generosity 
as a major sort of motivating factor of his ministry. He said things like, um, or we read in Acts chapter 20, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we see that we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Or, or in his little treatise on generosity in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, For you know the grace, that word means gift, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Or 2 Corinthians 9, 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You see that? You've received enrichment. You've received grace. You've been delivered. Therefore, you should be generous in every way. So, Friends, the, the, the lesson here is simple. The, the people of God should be the most generous people in the world because we've been given the greatest gift in the universe, salvation by grace through faith. That's, that's reason number one, generosity is a part of this. There's been deliverance. God's deliverance produces generosity. But there's another reason. Loving generosity sets God's people apart in this world. Haman and the enemies of God, uh, God's people, were marked by hateful taking, right? They, they're preparing to not only kill the Jews, but remember, plunder everything. That was their plan. Now, God's people, having been delivered, they are to be marked not by hateful taking, but by the opposite, a loving generosity to the world around them. In a world that takes for selfish gain, we are to be a people who selflessly give. The Apostle Paul gives a case study of this to the church in Thessalonica. He gives an example of this. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. Here's what Paul is saying to this church in Thessalonica. He's saying, how do I know that you Thessalonians love God? How do I know that you've been taught by God, you've been transformed by the gospel? Because you're generous. You're giving of yourself to this, this other church. That's what God's love does. It sets us apart with radical generosity because we've received radical generosity. So the question for us is simple. As you remember your own deliverance, are you letting it transform you so that you live a generous life? Not so that, don't, don't get this wrong, not so that God will love you. Let me be generous so I can be a better Christian so God will love, love me. No, that's backwards. But because God has loved and accepted and delivered you. Generosity is a sure sign that you comprehend and remember the grace of God towards you. That's why generosity is a part of Purim. Now, number three. So we have a day of remembrance, a day of generosity, and third and finally a day of impartation. Look at verse 27. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written 
and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Okay? Now, this word impart that I'm using, impartation, it means to communicate something, right? To take something and communicate it, to make it known. And notice in, in verse 27 that the Jews aren't only committing themselves to this day, they're also to impart this message to others, right? These, this feast is supposed to teach something, and they're supposed to impart this to others. Verse 27 gives us two groups of people, their offspring, say their kids, next generation, and all who joined them, right? Now let's consider both of those audiences for, for a second, because this is, this is something I think we can miss if we just read over this. First, they're supposed to commit the, the truths of Purim to their offspring and their descendants. Purim's a way of telling the coming generation of God's providential deliverance. This is, this is a major theme that we see uh, in, in the Old Testament. You can go back and, and look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and see how important it was for Hebrew families to not just know God themselves, but to formally and informally tell their children who God is and what He has done. Right? The, the, the message is clear. Impart the knowledge of God's deliverance who he is and what he's done to the coming generation. And so the, the message is clear for us as well, right? Very, very simple. It means tell your kids about Jesus. Tell the coming generation. Impart the gospel message to them. If you and I were to look at every feast of Israel, all of them were meant to teach us about God's deliverance and provision. They're meant to teach us who God is and what he has done to save his people. And all of them find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so though we don't celebrate Purim, church, and not just parents, parents, yes, but church, when we are taking the message of salvation and we are imparting it to the next generation, we are fulfilling this sort of spirit of Purim, right? We're passing on the truth of the gospel to the next generation. If it's not passed on, they will lose it. J. Max Stiles wrote a book called uh, Marks of a Messenger, Knowing, Living, and Speaking the Gospel. And listen to what he says about generations that lose the gospel. He says, losing the gospel doesn't happen all at once. It's much more like a four-generation process. The gospel is accepted. Then the gospel is assumed. Then the gospel is confused. And finally, the gospel is lost. He's saying that's what happens when you don't impart it to the next generation. So this, this is why God's people, we should say with the psalmist in Psalm 78, 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. This is, this is the why behind Seven Mile Kids. This is the, the why behind that cart back there that is stacked with Christ-centered biblical resources for children and families. This is why we do catechism at various ages. This is why we want to equip parents as much as possible because it is the responsibility of God's people to impart the message of salvation to the next generation, to our offspring. Now, God is sovereign. Only God can save. Our role is to impart. But there's another audience here, not just the children, not just the next generation. All who joined them, that's an interesting phrase, you can miss it. So this is the group of people 
in the immediate context of seeing all this happen, they're non-Jews, they're not a part of Israel, they're not a part of the covenant people of God, but they're in Persia and they're seeing this deliverance. We're told last week that, that they fear of what's happening and they want to be a part. Right? See, the message of salvation was, though it came through God's chosen nation Israel, it was, it was never just to stay for one nation. Remember what God told Abraham? Through you, all nations will be blessed. So that means Purim has this missional component to it. And, and this isn't surprising, right? When we come to the New Testament, we, we see Jesus parting words to his disciples. And what does he say? He spent three years with them. You know, they just had this 40-day seminary crash course after his resurrection. And he says in Acts 1-8, right before he ascends, he says, All right, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The message of deliverance is to go out. To go out to all nations. In other words, Christian, you and I, we have a story of deliverance to impart to those around us. We don't just keep it to ourselves. You see, God does something in you so that he can do something through you. We understand that? God doesn't just save you for you. He saves you, he delivers you so that you can then take that message and God uses you, church, to spread that message to those around you. There's this missional component to our celebration of Christ, right? It doesn't stay with us. Why would we not want to share it with others? So so just as these curious Persians were watching the Jews, this Haman thing, and they they, they see this, and they're curious, and they want to be a part, and then they're invited in. That's why they're included here. So God has placed you and I providentially in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our in our families, in our friend groups, wherever we are. He's placed us there so that we could display and declare the goodness of God's deliverance in Christ so we can live on mission and invite them in to participate in this celebration. All right, now, that is Purim in a nutshell. What it means for us as Christians. Remembrance, generosity, and impartation. But I want to say one final thing as we come to the end of this book. It's been a, a joyful journey. I hope it's been helpful for, for you. But I want to point out one final thing. How does this book end? So If you skip down to verse 3. Here's how Esther ends. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. If you just zoom back for a second, think about how this book ends. Esther ends with a feast of celebration and the leader of God's covenant people ruling with peace. Does that sound familiar if you've read the Bible before? When we come to the end of Scriptures, which is looking ahead to the coming day at Christ's return, what do we see? We see a coming feast where we're gathered around Jesus, the King of Peace. Revelation 19, 6-10 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, 
like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. When we look at Purim, when we look at any feast in the Old Testament, church, when we gather together on the Lord's Day to worship Him, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we see baptism, we're not only meant to look back and celebrate our deliverance in a way that produces generosity and outward living, but we're also to look forward to the day when Christ will return. And we're to celebrate and long for that day. I want to close with this quote from Ian Duguid, a commentator. He says this, Indeed, we have something to celebrate. There should constantly be a note of celebration and joy in our worship too. For we remember the death from which we have been spared. A somber tone may be appropriate for a funeral, but not for a feast day. Our tongues should be filled with such rejoicing that we can hardly wait to burst into songs of praise and celebrate the great victory that our God has won for us, turning death into life, darkness into light, the prospect of hell into the assurance of heaven.